Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. For new listeners, this podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what may be loosely and collectively called the laws of war. If you are new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and explain some of the basic framework of these legal regimes and introduce some of the issues that are to be examined in more detail through discussion with experts in the following episodes. And if you are a regular listener, apologies for the long hiatus this year. Life has a way of getting in the way of projects like this, but I'm glad to be back and hope to be posting several episodes in this new season, including a few cross-posting episodes with other beloved podcasts. So thanks again for your support, and please help spread the word about the podcast and feel free to send me ideas for future episodes. Our guest today is Tom Dannenbaum, who is a professor of international law at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and the co-director of the Center for International Law and Governance. You can find a link to his profile and links to his publications discussed in this episode are on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. As many listeners will know, Tom recently published an essay on just security about sieges and the crime of starvation in the context of the current Israel siege of Gaza. It will be recalled that on October 9th, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, ordered a complete siege of Gaza, stating that there would be no food, no water, no fuel, and nothing getting into Gaza. Now, Tom, in his short Just Security essay, analyzed this siege from the perspective of IHL and international criminal law, and the essay has gained considerable prominence. Tom has since appeared on such platforms as Ali Velshi's uh, news show on MSNBC. And kudos to Ali Velshi, by the way, for having international law experts on to try to explain IHL in some depth to his audience. But Tom has done a lot more work in this area, and in particular published two long law review articles in 2022 that delved deeply into the debate over interpretations of the IHL prohibitions on starvation as a method of warfare, and into the proper interpretation and operation of the war crime of intentionally using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare in the Rome Statute. In these articles, he examines the question of precisely what conduct constitutes the criminal act and goes further to explore the normative theories regarding the nature of the fundamental wrong that the crime seeks to address, what it is that actually makes it an independent crime. In other words, his analysis of the siege in Gaza is informed by this much deeper theoretical work of both the IHL regime as provided for in both the additional protocols, the Geneva Conventions and customary international law, and the international criminal law provisions in the Rome Statute governing starvation and siege. And so I thought it would be useful for us to speak with Tom and get an introduction to his deeper work, even as the world debates the issues as they relate to Gaza. We do circle back to discuss how this analysis should inform our understanding of the Gaza siege, but first we dig into his deeper theoretical work. We obviously cannot do it complete justice in the hour or so we had here, but hopefully it will help provide a fuller understanding of the issues, as well as whet your appetite to find some time to read the full articles. We do get into the weeds at times, and students may want to have the additional protocols and the Rome statutes at their elbow as you listen to this, but I think you will find that the details do matter. So with that, let us get to the conversation. Well, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for making time for this. Thanks for having me, Craig. Well, you know, as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking all my guests to the podcast to share something about their background, preferably something not reflected in your official profile and, and maybe even something you're colleagues don't even know about. Yeah, so I'm an avid listener and therefore knew that this was coming. And I asked my <laughs> partner, because I thought to myself, I'm just not that interesting. What could I possibly say in response to this question? And she said, well, something that's very unique about you that was actually a causal factor in her deciding to marry me is 
the, the way that I read children's books because I have this commitment to developing each character individually and giving them a specific voice, a specific timbre and tone and cadence and so on, and almost treating it as an acting exercise. And the thing that's, that's I think, problematic about it is it started out fine when I'm reading to the kids in their early years and they're two or three characters per book. But now I'm reading to my son, you know, these long 800-page novels with multiple characters and characters that don't pop up again for 200 pages. And I've completely forgotten what that character sounded like. But my son remembers. And the problem is he wants it to be the character that I gave it last time. So then I'm spending 10 minutes just reeling off every possible voice I can think of to try and replicate the one that I've been issuing earlier. And the second problem with it is that I've recently had a sore throat and some of the characters I give these kind of raspy, gravelly voices, especially if that's indicated by the author. And reading, I've been reading Harry Potter to him recently, the, the fifth book, and there are a couple of characters in that with these kind of gravelly voices and reading those with a sore, sore throat. It's like I need a cup of tea every page just to try and keep going. So that's a quirky thing about me that nobody knows. Literally none of my colleagues know this. And um yeah, apparently it was a sufficient reason for my for my wife to fall for me, although it's not exactly what I would have expected being the reason. <laughs> well, there you go. You have like a fallback career in, you know, yeah. <laughs> in radio. Well, I guess another question I have just about your background is just, I mean, we hear, of course, to discuss your work on siege and starvation, a topic mm -hmm. you've been working on quite a bit and quite deeply. Uh, and so I'm curious how you first got interested in this, because of course, um, you know, it's, as we're going to talk about is very topical today, but mm -hmm. wasn't so so much on the radar in the last few years. Yeah, it's interesting. This is a research interest that came out of engagement with non-lawyers. So when I joined the Fletcher School in 2017, which is a somewhat unique institution for, an, for a lawyer because it's not a law school, although we have a core group of international lawyers. So most of my colleagues aren't lawyers. And when I joined in 2017, some of my colleagues were planning a conference for the spring of 2018 on the return of famine. And these were all non-law colleagues, especially Alex Deval and Dan Maxwell, Alex being an anthropologist and a specialist in the Horn of Africa, and Dan Maxwell being an expert on humanitarian affairs. And they just wanted a lawyer to give a brief explainer on the law of armed conflict and international criminal law as it related to starvation. And so at that point, it was really just a, essentially a teaching exercise. So it was just given a brief to come in and give this explainer to a room full of people who were not lawyers. And the thing that occurred was as I was reading in preparation for what I was going to say, just questions were popping up that I didn't think were answered adequately in the existing literature or that weren't answered at all or weren't even explored. And then that was supplemented by when I was engaging with these colleagues from outside of law, outside of law altogether, not just international law, hearing from them, from their expertise on what actually happens in contexts of famine, how it functions. It was striking to me some of the parallels between that process and what I think of as the most compelling account of some of the wrongful aspects or the core wrongful aspect of torture. And that basically caused me to dive into this topic, both in terms of thinking about what the central wrong associated with salvation of civilians as a method of warfare is, and also in terms of some of the doctrinal or interpretive questions around that prohibition, having come to these questions essentially in preparation for that particular conference. Interesting. Well, we're going to do a deep dive into some of that theoretical work. But before we get to that, in the, the two long law review articles that you published in the last 
year, actually, you explore briefly, but interestingly, the, the extent to which starvation deprivation has been a feature of a number of armed conflicts in the last two decades. And so while Gaza is very much in the forefront of our thinking today, you point out that while it may not have been on the radar, it's very much been a feature. And perhaps you can just indicate the breadth of this phenomenon. Yeah. So the Secretary General of the United Nations issues a report on food security and issues related to conflict-induced food insecurity every year. And the report for 2022 noted that conflict drove acute food insecurity for 117 million people globally. So it's a really profound problem. And the situation in 2023 doesn't look as though it's going to get better in that respect. And in fact, for many years, it had been getting worse. And it's afflicted conflicts in multiple different ways and across multiple different situations. Some of the most prominent Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, Tigray and Ethiopia, Nigeria, Myanmar, Ukraine, and now Gaza. And the tactics that have been used have also ranged across a a variety. It's not all siege, starvation, or deprivation through encirclement, but it includes things like burning crops, slaughter of livestock, attacks on granaries or grocery stores or aid convoys, the mining of farmland, disabling of water pumps, removal of agricultural machinery. So a whole range of different modalities of inflicting starvation on civilians. I should caveat this by saying some of the food insecurity that's driven by conflict is not pursuant to starvation of civilians as a method of warfare. So that initial number I gave you is not disaggregating which of those persons who are affected by that specific wrong as opposed to food insecurity that's the result of conflict but not part of a method of warfare. But the kinds of tactics I just mentioned clearly are right. components of methods of warfare. And so one last question to sort of set the table before we do a, a dive into the more technical aspects is the history. So in, mm -hmm. in both of these articles, you explore a bit the history of the development of international law's response to starvation, deprivation, siege. And I think it's somewhat surprising to learn that it was entirely permissible until after World War II. And, and even in the Nuremberg trials, it was not prosecuted. And so it's fairly recent that a prohibition has developed in IHL and even more recent that there has been a war crime codified. So perhaps you could just briefly explore that history for us before we dive in. Yeah, I think the most striking example of the way that it's changed is if you go back to the Lieber Code from 1863, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with it. In Article 17 and 18 of that code, starvation, including starvation methods directed at civilians, so it refers to starvation of the hostile belligerent armed or unarmed, is permissible. And indeed, in Article 18, in the context of siege, it's even permissible to drive civilians back into a besieged place so as to hasten the capitulation of the adversary, to hasten the surrender in a context of siege. So in that context, it was explicitly permitted to engage in this kind of method of warfare. When we move through to the Hague Regulations in 1899 and 1907, it's not specifically discussed starvation as a method of warfare, but it's also not prohibited. And in the provisions on siege and the provisions on specifically prohibited acts, there's no mention of starvation as a method of warfare. And that's one of the reasons why when we come to the evaluation of the siege of Leningrad in the high command case following World War II, the Nuremberg Military Tribunal that is evaluating whether or not that siege was a war crime said basically we have to apply the laws we find it and 
as horrific as this is in that context, a million people suffering as a at death as a result of the siege of Leningrad, we can't find this method of warfare to be clearly prohibited at this point in the trajectory of international law. That starts to shift, although not in a comprehensive way yet, after World War II with the Geneva Conventions of 1949, most obviously in the context of occupied territory. So the occupying power has clear positive obligations to ensure the food and medical supply of the civilian population under Article uh, 55 of Geneva Convention 4, and then where there's not adequate supply to allow humanitarian assistance in under Article 59. And those obligations are clear and not subject to the discretion of the occupying power. So there, there's a clear set of obligations and a clear prohibition on using starvation as a method against the civilian population in a context of occupation. But outside that context, there's still a relatively permissive framework, and this is most clear in Article 23 of Geneva Convention 4, which requires the permission of certain kinds of goods, medical supplies and religious supplies to the civilian population generally, and others such as food, clothing, and the like to a certain subset of civilians expecting mothers, uh, children under 15, maternity cases being specifically identified, but not the civilian population as a whole. And even then subjects those requirements of permission to what in my view are basically eviscerating caveats, including that the commander making this decision does not need to allow those objects through if there are serious reasons for fearing the diversion of the objects, non-control over the delivery of these essential objects, or that a definite advantage will be returned to the adversary, either in terms of its military efforts or even its economy, which could include through substituting for resources that it would otherwise have to devote to supporting the civilian population. So that's really a, an eviscerating caveat. So it's not really until 1977 with the additional protocols that we get the development of a more comprehensive ban, and that's in both of the two additional protocols in Article 54 of AP1 and 14 of Additional Protocol 2, where starvation of civilians as a method of warfare is prohibited. And then in particular in Article 54, there's this elaboration of how this applies to the protection of objects indispensable to civilian survival, which in my view is really essential to understanding what starvation of civilians as a method of warfare means. Even then, it's not part of the grave breaches regime within Additional Protocol 1. So it's prohibited, but it's not part of the grave breaches listed in Article 85. And therefore, it's not until we get to the ICC statute with the codification there for international armed conflicts that we see a clear war crime associated with salvation of civilians as a method of warfare. That's then amended, there's an amendment in 2019 to extend that to non-international armed conflicts. And there have been a number of other um, courts and domestic war crime statutes that have included both IAC and NIAC war crimes associated with salvation of civilians in the intervening years. Well, with that, I think we can start to dive into some of the detail. And before we get to the crime and the, the two articles that you've, you've published, which are focused on the interpretation of the criminal provision and the characterization of, of the crime. But before we get into that, I thought we should explore the prohibition in IHL. And, mm -hmm. and we're going to talk a little bit about the relationship between the IHL prohibition and the, the international criminal law provision. So let's dig into Article 54 of AP1 and, and 14 of AP2. And for the students out there, you may want to pause and grab your Geneva Convention additional protocols as we get into the language. Um, and let's begin with 
the meaning of method of warfare and what that requires from your from your perspective and what the debate around the scope and operation of, of this prohibition is. Yeah, so the way I typically think of approaching this provision is actually to start with the protection of objects indispensable to civilian survival. But the reason I say that is because those are subsequent to this specific language around prohibition of salvation of civilians as a method of warfare in the first paragraph. But just on that specific question relating to method of warfare, the concept isn't really defined. One way of understanding it is that there has to be a belligerent nexus. So not really specific about how the activity is performed or the purpose for which it's performed, but just that it connects to the war. It's shaped by and dependent upon the context of armed conflict. Another would be to, to see it as identifying a practice that is driven by a particular military aim that is used to achieve a particular military objective. And that can then impact how one understands the degree to which starvation is prohibited here as a purposive matter, that starvation is used to achieve some kind of military objective as opposed to starvation being a consequence that is prohibited because it's inflicted pursuant to an activity that has a belligerent nexus. But I think the easiest way to understand that and to get through that kind of interpretive challenge is to move to the second paragraph. And interestingly, the second and third in drafting came before the first. The first was added in towards the end of the drafting process. And the second and third are really focused on the protection of objects indispensable to civilian survival, such as food, water, and the means and mechanisms through which they're provided to civilians. And there, there are some very specific prohibitions and safeguards that are distinct from the prohibitions and safeguards applicable to objects more generally. I mean, just to zoom out just a, a, a touch, and especially for the students who may be listening, as I understand it, the key issue here is that some interpreters would suggest that the the language, which is quite simply starvation of civilians as a method of warfare is prohibited, mm -hmm. would focus on the method of warfare as a way of suggesting that it's only starvation that is deliberate, intentional, and for the purpose of starving civilians as a means of advancing some military objective. Right. And if the starvation of civilians is incidental to the mm -hmm. starvation of combatants, for instance, well, that's mm -hmm. not prohibited. Mm -hmm. And so you take a different view. And okay. as I as we're about to get into, in part, that view is supported by the interpretation of the subsequent provisions that are getting at the destruction of objects that are indispensable to civilian okay. survival. So yes, okay. why don't we sort of explore those provisions and how it is that they support your view that indeed the prohibition is on starvation, whether it's intended specifically as a means of advancing military objectives or not. Yeah. Well, one other thing that I just want to add in before we do that is even if one thinks that what it means to engage in starvation of civilians as a method of warfare is that there has to be something deliberate about starvation of civilians, that that has to be the thing one is doing to achieve a military aim as opposed to an outcome that is incidental to some other activity. There's also a question there as to what one understands starvation of civilians to mean, whether one understands it to, to mean an intransitive state of affairs that civilians are in a state of starvation, or if one understands it to refer to a practice, a transitive act of starvation, in other words, of sustenance denial. And my view is that the latter of those interpretations is the better interpretation of what that component means 
And in that context, it can be the case that one is engaged deliberately in sustenance denial in a way that affects civilians and maybe even, and we'll come back to this, I think, later, has a civilian population as its target, but where the ultimate goal or the thing that one is trying to achieve militarily is something different from using the ultimate end state of starvation as a method of warfare. Does that, does that make sense? Am, am yeah. I... Yeah, and as you say, and we're, we'll, we'll circle back when we get into the crime about your analogy to torture and what is the, the actual wrong involved in the crime. But even in the context of the IHL prohibition, I think, as you say, it's important for us to understand some of these distinctions. Right, right. And so then if we move to objects indispensable to civilian survival, and I think this supports the the point I was just making. One way of starting this is to think about the distinction between objects indispensable to civilian survival, such as food, water, and the systems through which they're produced and provided, and any other object. So ordinarily, when we're thinking about objects and targetability and protection, a dual-use object is targetable. So our ordinary analysis of Article 52 of Additional Protocol 1 and when an object becomes a military objective is if it serves a military use, if it makes an effective contribution to military action, then it's targetable even if it also serves a civilian use. Objects indispensable to civilian survival are different. They are regulated differently under paragraphs 2 and 3 of Article 54. In particular, what you might think of as dual-use sustenance, in other words, objects that provide sustenance to both combatants and civilians, cannot be attacked, destroyed, removed, or rendered useless for their sustenance value, including their sustenance value to the adverse party, unless it's only combatants who are reliant upon that sustenance. So sustenance that has a dual use, that has both civilian use as sustenance and combatant use, is not targetable. Moreover, even if those objects are providing a military function other than sustenance value, so, you know, if it's a grain silo that's providing cover to combatants, for example, it still can't be targeted if the consequence of that would be civilian starvation or the forced movement of the civilian population. And so with respect to attacks, destruction, removal or rendering useless of objects indispensable to civilian survival, there is a general prohibition subject to two caveats. One, if that's being targeted for its sustenance value, but it's exclusively sustenance to combatants, or if it's being used for some other military function and the attack wouldn't cause starvation or force movement of the civilian population. And these paragraphs are understood in the commentary and also appear in the way that the provision is structured to be exemplifications and specific manifestations of the rule prohibiting starvation of civilians as a method of warfare. And the, I think, most coherent way of understanding how those prohibitions are prohibited starvation of civilians as a method of warfare is if one understands starvation of civilians as a method of warfare as having two alternative meanings. One, the deliberate denial of sustenance to a population that includes civilians, or two, actions that are known to cause starvation among the civilian population. And so that's a way of thinking about what starvation of civilians as a method of warfare is in the context of the the additional elaboration of that provision in the subsequent paragraphs as they relate to objects and the protection of objects, which is 
imperative, it's imperative to articulate that explicitly in Article 54 because of the otherwise relatively expansive permission to target objects in the context of dual-use objects. Obviously, even in dual-use objects, civilians still have protections in terms of precautions and proportionality, but this is instead at the level of distinction, so you just can't target dual-use sustenance. We don't need to evaluate what the proportionality or precautions are if it's providing sustenance to both combatants and civilians, it's not targetable on that basis. Interesting. Okay, but now, so that is Article 54, additional Protocol 1. This relates to international armed conflicts and belligerent occupation. But of course, additional Protocol 2 governs non-international armed conflict. And Article 14 has language that is a little bit different and includes this phrase for that purpose, which seems to suggest more along the lines of intentional uh, starvation for that purpose. So, so how do you see the distinction and, and how do you interpret Article 14 in this context? So I think the reference to engaging starvation of civilians as a method of warfare by engaging in acts of deprivation vis-a-vis objects indispensable to civilian survival for that purpose, the way I see that provision working is that the thing that attaches to the purpose is the deprivation. So it's purposive deprivation. It's not that one is causing the destruction of crops, for example, by targeting something in their vicinity. It's that that's the target, that's the purpose. The question of the outcome that one then hopes to achieve from that targeting is evaluated by this question of whether it's about sustenance denial in the first instance, that's the transitive sense of starvation of civilians as a method of warfare, or whether it's about knowingly causing starvation of civilians as an intransitive final state in terms of the the state of affairs among the civilian population that is the result of this particular action. All right. So ultimately, you're, you're basically suggesting that the interpretation of both provisions relating to both international armed conflict and non-international armed conflict is a broad prohibition on starvation as a method of warfare that should be interpreted as any deprivation that has the consequence uh, creating this sort of food insecurity among the civilian population, regardless of the deliberate intent. Well, I, I'd say there are two ways of thinking about it. Either the indispensable objects are deliberately denied for their sustenance value, where the population that's affected includes both civilians and combatants, or they're denied for other reasons, but starvation, the sort of final result of food insecurity, not the beginning of it, is the consequence. So there are two different alternative aspects to the prohibition. On the first one, an important background component here is understanding that there's a basic rule of international humanitarian law, which is codified in Article 48 of Additional Protocol 1, which is that in all military operations, the parties to the conflict must distinguish between civilians and combatants and between the civilian population and combatants. And so in a context in which a population as a whole, which retains civilian character, is the population that is targeted with sustenance denial. The fact that the ultimate goal might be to starve out the combatants within that population cannot transform this away from being a deliberate denial of sustenance that is targeted at a civilian population as a whole. So the ultimate goal of that targeting doesn't change it. In the very same way, that if we were to look at that same population and the commander was to say, well, I want to kill the combatants within that population, but I can't figure out who's a combatant and who's a civilian, so just carpet bomb all of them, 
that would be clearly prohibited as an attack on a civilian population, even if the goal was just to kill the combatants. There wouldn't be any discrimination between combatants and civilians in the way the operation was conducted, and the population as a whole would retain its civilian character, notwithstanding the presence of combatants. And so that operation would be clearly prohibited. In my view, this is entirely analogous to that, which is to say, denying sustenance to a population where there's no distinction made between whether combatants or civilians are going to receive that sustenance is prohibited for the same kind of reason. So if we see sustenance denial as what starvation methods constitute, then the question of whether it's sustenance denial vis-a-vis civilians can include, or the, the prohibited act can include sustenance denial to a civilian population that includes combatants. So now you also talk a little bit about in your articles how there are differing interpretations of or applications of the principle of distinction to this context. And there are those who argue that the principle of distinction doesn't apply precisely because the deprivation of, of objects indispensable to civilian survival don't constitute attacks and therefore don't come within the language of the prohibition on targeting of civilians. So how do you see the principle of distinction applying here? Yeah, so there's a, a few things to say about that. The first is, with respect to attacks, destruction, removal, or rendering useless of food, water, or the systems through which they're provided, it's just very clear in Article 54, at least in international armed conflicts, that the rules that I've articulated apply, that you cannot attack those objects or destroy them or remove them or render them useless, where the purpose is sustenance denial, even if the ultimate goal is denying that sustenance to combatants, if civilians will be affected, and also can't do it if civilians would be expected to starve as a result, even if the purpose is something other than sustenance denial. The question arises, what about other modalities of deprivation, such as encirclement, which isn't at least explicitly included with an attack, destruction, removal, or rendering useless? One could make an argument that denying humanitarian aid to a population renders that aid useless in some sense, but it is at least open to dispute. So then that kind of action would only be governed by the umbrella concept of starvation of civilians as a method of warfare. And then, as you say, there's the question of A, whether the rules on attacks apply to such an action, and B, when we're thinking about the prohibition on starvation of civilians as a method of warfare, which clearly does apply, what does it mean in relation to encirclement? Does it mean something other than what it means when applied through this analysis of paragraphs two and three of Article 54 as those govern attacks, destruction, removal, and rendering useless of objects indispensable to civilian survival. The first thing I think to say here is that Article 48, the general rule, the basic rule on distinguishing between civilians and the civilian population on one hand and combatants on the other hand in all military operations is not limited to attacks. So Article 49 is limited to attacks and then the rules that follow that, 51, 52, etc., are limited to attacks. But Article 48 is not. It talks about military operations. It's true that most do not think this means all military operations, regardless of their nature, have to draw a bright line between combatants and civilians. So one might think, for example, in intelligence gathering or certain methods of control in terms of movement across territory and so on, one might apply those to everybody, not just to combatants. But my view is any operation, the primary purpose or effect of which is to cause harm or suffering, has to be governed by that rule in order to be coherent with the general framework of international humanitarian law. So to say that the infliction of 
starvation or the deliberate denial of sustenance, which clearly in the latter case is a purposive infliction of harm and in the former case is an expected infliction of harm. To say that that would not be governed by the general principle of distinguishing between civilians and civilian population on one hand and combatants on the other would create this extraordinary gap in human protection within international humanitarian law that would require some profound justification. What would explain that gap? And similarly, when we're looking at the prohibition of salvation of civilians as a method of warfare, what would explain why encirclement deprivation would be treated differently from deprivation by attack, destruction, removal, or rendering useless, which is clearly prohibited if done to deny sustenance to a population that includes civilians, or if done in a way that is for reasons other than denying sustenance, but where civilian starvation is the expected consequence. So one would have to explain what the difference is. And one would also have to explain in relation to the point I was just making about Article 48, why one clearly could not engage in an indiscriminate attack on a particular population, but one could engage in indiscriminate encirclement starvation of that population. And it's often actually not explained why that would be the case, that the concept that's typically invoked is military necessity. But military necessity is not ordinarily a caveat to otherwise clear prohibitions in international humanitarian law. Contemporary international humanitarian law includes many provisions that are informed by considerations of military necessity and humanity. But once the provision and the prohibition is clear, you can't then invoke military necessity as a way out of it. And so the question would be, why should we interpret this in relation to military necessity in a different way? And although it's not often stated, I think the primary reason that people attempted to interpret it as more permissive in this context than in the context of indiscriminate attacks or otherwise is the sense that starvation occurs slowly. So one engages in the siege or deprivation of an area and there's not an immediate effect. One isn't indiscriminately bombarding the areas regardless of whether they're civilian or combatant. That would be clearly prohibited. But there's this sense among some interpreters that if one is just cutting off the supply of essentials, there's not an immediate harm to those persons who are encircled. It's a harm that develops and uh, gets worse over time, but not one that's immediate. And that allows for alternative responses, capitulation or flight, and that that somehow changes the nature of this analysis. I think that's incorrect, not just because of the way it creates this arbitrary distinction between actions vis-a-vis -vis indispensable objects such as attack, destruction, removal, rendering useless, and other ways of depriving those objects of their sustenance value such as encirclement, but also because it misunderstands the nature of the harm that's inflicted on the population that is encircled in that kind of context. Right. Well, we'll come back to that because I, I think that's one of the sort of core arguments of one of your articles with respect to the yeah. interpretation of the criminal provision, which I think is, is fascinating. But before we turn to that, just to sort of tie a bow on the IHL prohibitions, I think it's important that we just talk briefly at least about uh, Additional Protocol 1, Article 70, and yes. Article 18 of Additional Protocol 2, which is all about permitting humanitarian aid and how that ties into the prohibition. Yeah, so these are provisions that I think are usefully understood in combination or conjunction with the prohibition of salvation of civilians as a method of warfare. And what they require is that in contexts of inadequate supplies to the civilian population, humanitarian, impartial humanitarian relief operations shall be undertaken subject to the consent of the parties concerned or the party concerned in the context of AP2, where it's the state that is the 
is the primary actor that grants consent. And then the question is, what's the level of discretion vis-a-vis consent there? And one way that I think is a compelling way of thinking about it has been developed by Emanuela Chiara Gillard and Dapo Akande in their Oxford Guidance on Humanitarian Access, which says the, the use of the term shall, that humanitarian relief shall be provided subject to the consent of the parties, indicates that the consent cannot be denied arbitrarily. And then when we're thinking about what arbitrary denial of consent would entail, or at what point the denial of consent becomes arbitrary, one can look to the prohibition on salvation of civilians as a method of warfare as one ground on which something would be, or this kind of consent would be arbitrarily denied. And then, of course, one could get into a debate about, get back to the debate regarding what exactly salvation of civilians and meth- salvation of civilians as a method of warfare means. But if one takes the view that I take, which is that denying indispensable objects such as food and water for their sustenance value just is engaging in starvation as a method of warfare, and then whether it's of civilians depends on whether there are civilians affected by it, then denying humanitarian access so as to deny the sustenance value of the objects that would be brought in would itself implicate starvation of civilians as a method of warfare. That doesn't mean that every organization has to be allowed in. There can be reasons why certain organizations would be preferred over others or certain mechanisms of control or ensuring that the distribution is really reaching civilians and so on are preferred or that in certain contexts there are military imperatives to set certain times or routes, those kinds of things. But denying humanitarian access for the purpose of sustenance denial would be precluded unless the encircled population were composed exclusively of combatants. So one last, I think, area that we should explore before turning to the Rome Statute and and the criminal provisions is just to sort of zoom out and discuss, first of all, how much much of these provisions constitute customary international law, because of course, Israel, the United States, several other important states are not party to one or both of the additional protocols. And and secondly, we've suggested that there are different interpretations of some of these provisions and that there is some debate. So it might be helpful to establish which of these sort of interpretations principles can be safely said to be established uh, understanding of the law and those that are more open to debate said to be sort of unsettled. Yeah. So first on the question of what's custom here, I think what's notable is, first of all, that the International Criminal Court statute includes in Article 82b25, the prohibition of salvation of civilians as a method of warfare by depriving civilians of objects indispensable to their survival, and incidentally includes through willfully impeding relief supplies. So it doesn't limit this to attack, destruction, removal, or rendering useless, but includes all modalities of deprivation and specifically identifies um, impeding relief supplies as a modality that could be incorporated within the prohibition. That's significant because the state parties to the ICC statute understand those provisions to constitute customary international law, not least because the chapeau in 82b includes specific reference to these being serious violations of the law of armed conflict. So it's it's derivative of an underlying customary international law prohibition. And indeed, the nature of ICC jurisdiction, given the possibility of it being exercised retroactively, either through a state issuing an Article 12.3 declaration, as a number of states have done, or through Security Council referral, the nature of that modality of jurisdiction being available itself is compatible with the principle of legality only if the substantive provisions within the Rome Statute are understood to 
constitute customary international law. Obviously, any given state that has never accepted ICC jurisdiction might contest that. But for the states that are party to the ICC, the implication of them endorsing this framework is that they understand these things to be customary international law. Beyond that, it's been incorporated into another, uh, several other, I should say, international criminal tribunals, including the not yet entered into force Malabo Protocol within the context of the African Union. It's also been referenced in Security Council Resolution 2417, this landmark resolution which condemns starvation of civilians as a method of warfare, including the unlawful denial of humanitarian access and other deprivation of objects indispensable to survival and warns that of their potential war crime status. So that's endorsed at the Security Council level, including by state, a number of states, as you know, that are not party to the International Criminal Court. It's being codified in domestic war crimes statutes by a number of states, including several states that are not party to the ICC statute, and at least a couple of states, I think, that are not party to the additional protocols. And then it's in military manuals or other expressions of state opinion juris in other states. Then additionally, I think you can look to both state condemnation generally and Security Council condemnation of sieges or acts of deprivation that have no exception, um, that have no humanitarian corridor, those kinds of concerns that have been raised or condemnation that's been, that's been issued in response to those kinds of practices as itself indicative of, of opinion juris on that question. All right. And then the second aspect of what would you say is sort of settled, well-established about yeah. these provisions and which is open to debate or unsettled? Yeah, so there are very few cases on this. And so when one, by which I mean court cases, clear judgments evaluating the scope of these provisions. And so when one thinks about what is settled or unsettled, if the question is, is there authoritative case law, then the answer is, in my view, no. And if the question is, have different interpretations been advanced in the literature, then the answer is clearly yes. But I'm reluctant to say that means the law is unsettled on this. I think that one can come to a better interpretation in a context of a lack of case law and in a context in which different interpretations have been advanced in the literature by looking at the provisions and understanding them against the underlying principles of international humanitarian law and reaching a conclusion that is maximally coherent with those underlying principles and reflects the structure of the provisions. And in my view, that unsurprisingly leads to the conclusion that I'm, I'm proposing. All right. Well, let's turn then to the criminal offense as provided for in the Rome Statute. And, and your, both of your articles are looking at different aspects of this provision and different debates regarding the proper interpretation of the provision. So let's dive into that. And perhaps you can just begin by explaining what the debates are, what are the two aspects of the provision that uh, are the focus of your, your articles. Yeah. So one of the articles, and I should maybe preface this by saying originally it was one article. And as you know, they're both long articles, so it just became totally unwieldy. But one of the articles is really thinking about this in terms of doctrinal interpretation, looking at the provision and then looking at the elements of the crime and thinking about how best to understand the scope of this prohibition and the specific meaning of the specific elements of the crime. The other is more theoretical, more normative theoretical, and it basically starts from the premise that international criminal law is not just a coordinative 
system. It's not just a system for coordinating action. It's a system for identifying specific wrongs and condemning those wrongs. And when a system does that, one can ask the question of any given prohibition, what exactly is the wrong here? What is it that makes this thing criminal and therefore condemnable? And that has both intrinsic value in terms of understanding what it is we're expressing through criminal law, but also interpretive value in terms of understanding what the scope of the prohibition is in relation to the thing that makes the prohibited act wrongful. Right. And so we've actually done some of the analysis or we've gone over some of the analysis in the first article about what the method of warfare means and, and what yeah. is the specific intent required. So perhaps we can we can circle back to that if we need to. But why don't we dig into uh, the focus of the second article, which is what is the wrong? And, and so to begin, you might just explain very briefly what a common view of that wrong is and why you think it is incorrect and sort of what your take is on the actual wrong that is being addressed by the criminal uh, provision. Yeah. So I think one way in which the core wrong is understood by some or one way in which this crime is framed by some is basically as a form of lethal or potentially lethal attack on civilians. And that leads to thinking about the wrong as the ultimate state of starvation, the infliction of that final state on civilians. And that in turn has two consequences. One is it has a consequence in terms of when one thinks the crime attaches, how early in the process one thinks it attaches. And the other is that it has a consequence in terms of thinking about the method of warfare idea that we were discussing earlier and what it is that is the method of warfare. It's the, that civilian suffering at the end that's the method of warfare. Related to both of those, though, it has the consequence of something that I mentioned earlier, which is understanding the initial deprivation of food or water as not necessarily entailing that final consequence or even entailing the desire to achieve that final consequence or inflict that final consequence because there's an intervening objective which is to elicit capitulation or elicit surrender or cause civilians to leave the encircled zone. And that allows, from some perspectives, one to say that the purpose of inflicting starvation of civilians as a method of warfare is not inherent in the denial of sustenance to a civilian population, because one's purpose is to elicit capitulation before we get to that result, and or to starve out combatants rather than civilians, and to try and cause civilians to leave or otherwise avoid that consequence before it arises. Right. So, so in other words, the prohibition wouldn't have been violated if you're denying sustenance, but nobody has starved to death yet, and you're in the process of trying to force capitulation, at that point in time, from this perspective, you haven't violated the prohibition in IHL, and you certainly haven't violated the provision in criminal law. There's at least that possibility, or that, that way of interpreting it has been put forward. I think it's wrong, for reasons I'll explain, but that appears to be part of what is underpinning the claim that encircling a population that is a civilian population as a whole and doesn't lose its civilian character as a whole and depriving that population of indispensable objects is not yet starvation because it doesn't have that outcome as its purpose. It has an intervening 
purpose that is supposed to arise before that final outcome. The reason I think that's wrong is that I think it misunderstands the nature of the harm that is inflicted on civilians in this context. And it invokes military necessity, as I suggested earlier, in a way that suggests there's not a bright line crossed at the point of that initial infliction of deprivation. And the thing I think it misses is the way in which the harm that's inflicted on a civilian population in this context is torturous. In other words, it has a direct analogy to what makes torture distinctively wrongful. And just as the ticking bomb thought experiment is not a compelling basis on which to say, as a matter of necessity, we can inflict this kind of harm on a detainee to achieve a particular outcome, the necessity claim in terms of inflicting deprivation on a civilian population with the hope of generating capitulation before they ultimately suffer the final consequences of starvation is misguided. Because in the intervening period, what is being done is inflicting on a population in a context in which one cannot distinguish between the civilians and combatants and is therefore inflicting on the civilian population, regardless of the fact that they're are also combatants embedded within it, conditions that start to cause their biological imperatives, the need for food, the need for water, the need for sustenance, to tear against their higher order commitments, the commitments that are the kinds of commit commitments that we think of as fundamentally human commitments, political commitments, social commitments, familial commitments, because the desperation generated by the biological imperative to gain sustenance, food and water, starts to crowd out the capacity to pursue those higher order commitments and to live consistently with them, even if one would, in a moment of reflection, choose to do so notwithstanding extraordinary costs. And that has an equivalence to torture because the way torture works similarly is by breaking the will through crowding out the capacity to resist, not because one thinks, well, the cost in a sort of rational way, the cost is now higher than the value of this commitment to me, but because I've just reached a point at which I cannot make that decision between the two because the biological imperative to be free from pain or free from the suffering associated with hunger or dehydration is so great that I can no longer pursue those commitments to my family, to my society, to my politics in the way that I would choose to do so if I weren't in this desperate state. That's not obviously to say that everyone, everyone's will is broken across all of those commitments in this context, just the same as in a context of torture. Not everybody's will is broken by the fact of the infliction of torture. But it is to say that that's how this system works. That's how capitulation is supposed to be achieved. And even if one is simply trying to cause combatants within to capitulate, the only way that that's being done in this context is through inflicting this kind of suffering on the civilian population. And that inevitably, as a known consequence, causes these social bonds to break and these capacities to pursue one's higher order commitments freely to be disrupted in a way that is, I think, directly analogous to torture. And therefore, the graduality of this process, as distinct from, say, a kinetic attack, where we'd all agree a kinetic attack on the encircled population as a whole is unlawful as an attack on a civilian population, is not a mitigating feature. It is instead the very way that this kind of particular torturous wrong is inflicted, this 
process that builds and tears at one's capacity for these commitments. And so I think framing it in that way precludes a position in which one just doesn't take seriously the harms that occur across the full cycle of this practice. Right. So I, I think it's a fascinating argument. And the analogy to torture is really interesting because, uh, you know, in the same way that I think for many people, uh, some of the arguments around torture seem counterintuitive. The idea that somehow torture may be considered worse than murder seems to many people counterintuitive. And, and in the same way here, I think you're turning on, on its head the argument that somehow that starvation is in many respects worse than a kinetic attack on, on civilians and that this idea of incremental suffering is not at all something mitigating, but it actually is perhaps a, an aggravating feature of, of the crime. So that's fascinating. Yeah, or at least, I mean, I, even if one didn't go so far as to say it aggravates, it creates a distinctive kind of wrong that is, in my view, not not reflective of mitigating factors, isn't lesser than the wrong of the kinetic attack. And so I, I, I wouldn't want to put them in a hierarchy vis-a-vis -vis one another necessarily, right. but I do want to push back very strongly on the notion that somehow indiscriminately starving a civilian population that also includes combatants within it is different than carpet bombing the entire population because one involves immediate death and the other doesn't. The one that doesn't involve immediate death involves this extraordinary process of suffering that is equivalent, in my view, to torture. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that therefore means it's clearly worse so much as just push back very strongly on the notion right. that it's somehow not as bad or that it's easier to justify or it's subject to a military necessity caveat that clearly wouldn't apply in the context of the indiscriminate attack example. And, and just to add to that military necessity component, what's often said, and you could see this in, in current situations, is the encircling party cannot deprive combatants of sustenance without depriving the whole population of sustenance. And therefore, there's this necessity argument to deprive the whole population of sustenance. But that argument just wouldn't fly if one were to say the encircling party cannot figure out who the combatants are and where they are in this area. So they're just going to kill everybody. And the only ultimate goal is the killing of combatants. But the only way to do it is to kill everybody because we just don't know who the combatants are or not. That clearly is not a defensible position under international humanitarian law as it operates today. I don't think anybody would defend that position. It would be an attack on a civilian population, that's prohibited, and it would be an indiscriminate attack, that's prohibited. Both of those prohibitions are bright line that before we get to analysis of proportionality, so it doesn't matter what the value of the combatants within that population are in terms of their, their military significance and so on, it would just be prohibited off the bat. And my view is that the same analysis should apply to that kind of indiscriminate starvation of civilians because what we're talking about is this infliction of a torturous wrong that shouldn't be taken less seriously than the infliction of immediate death through kinetic attack. Right. And just to, to circle back to the, the same question that I asked with respect to the IHL prohibitions, this pro provision is, is quite new, particularly as it applies to non-international armed conflict. And so there are these debates about the proper interpretation. What is your sense of to what extent or which aspects of the provision are, I want to use the word well-established, but that's probably not the right term, but accepted or understood to be non-controversial and which aspects uh, are in fact still the subject of some heated debate? Yeah. So the, the elements of the crime in the ICC framework 
are that, first of all, the perpetrator has to deprive civilians of objects indispensable to their survival. And secondly, the perpetrator has to intend to starve civilians as a method of warfare. There's no consequence element. In, in other words, there's no need to establish that some specific state of affairs arises as a result of these acts. Those are the two elements combined, obviously, with the ordinary uh, underlying armed conflict elements and nexus component. But the, the core substantive elements are deprivation of objects indispensable survival and intent to starve civilians as a method of warfare. And the debates here are mostly derivative of the debates that we were referencing earlier in terms of, in particular, what salvation of civilians as a method of warfare means. But here then, with the added potential area of debate, which is what intending to starve civilians as a method of warfare means. If one thinks, as I think is the correct view, that starvation of civilians as a method of warfare means the deliberate deprivation of objects indispensable to civilian survival, then intending to do that, even if one takes a purposive understanding of intent, just means meaning to do that thing, meaning to engage in the deprivation of objects uh, indispensable to civilian survival for their sustenance value. And so if we were to look, for example, at the current siege of Gaza and its initial articulation by Defence Minister Yoav Gallant, his initial articulation was no food, no water, no electricity, no fuel. It wasn't food is going to be precluded as a collateral consequence of certain kinds of actions that are militarily necessary on these grounds. It was we're cutting off food. And food, qua food, just is sustenance. It wasn't, you know, identifying food that's performing some other kind of function, food that could be weaponized in some way or that could provide a particular component of some kind of other military activity. It was food as food, which just is sustenance. So it was clearly the denial of sustenance for its sustenance value. And the target was a civilian population, notwithstanding the presence of combatants within it. And so on that understanding of intent, the crime attaches at that point. If one thinks instead that intent here, intent to starve civilians as a method of warfare, means intent to cause a particular outcome, namely the starvation of civilians, as opposed to engage in a practice of starvation of civilians. So to cause civilians to be in a state of starvation as opposed to deny them sustenance as a practice. Then the question of intent becomes potentially more complicated because the question is, does that mean just direct intent where causing that outcome for civilians is the purpose of the act? Or does it include oblique intent such that knowing that that state of affairs will arise in the ordinary course of events would be sufficient? And in the ICC statute in Article 30, intent vis-a-vis -a, -vis a consequence and here, if we're talking about the outcome, even though that outcome is not itself a consequence element of the crime, it is nonetheless a consequence in terms of the thing one is trying to achieve or knowing will occur. Intent vis-a-vis -a, -vis a consequence is understood to include either of these alternative forms of intent, direct intent or oblique intent, meaning to cause that consequence or knowing that consequence will occur in the ordinary course of events, which has been understood in the jurisprudence to mean knowing that it will occur with a virtual certainty. My view is that the best understanding of this, of this concept of intent is either one intended to deprive civilians of these objects for the sustenance value of the objects, regardless of the outcome one was trying to achieve through that, or one had oblique intent vis-a-vis -vis the intransitive state of starvation as an outcome. 
where there would be debate is on both of those points. In other words, A, whether it's correct to say that the transitive concept of starvation, the practice of starvation independent of outcome is the thing to which intent attaches. And B, if intent only can attach to the intransitive state of starvation that arises at the culmination of somebody's suffering of deprivation of objects indispensable to their survival, if it has to attach to that, whether it could include oblique intent in addition to purpose of intent. And the narrowest understanding would be purpose of intent only attaching to the intransitive outcome. I think that cannot be correct because of how narrowly it would construe the crime and because it would totally miss the wrongfulness of the crime which inheres in the torturous process that leads to the final state of starvation as opposed to just that final state. But that's where there would be potentially some debate. But because I just, when I say some debate, I, I don't want to leave listeners confused as to my view on this. I think it's clear that it has to attach to deliberate deprivation for the purposes of sustenance denial, where certainly where the target is a civilian population, regardless of whether that civilian population also has combatants within it, because it retains its civilian character, notwithstanding the, the presence of those combatants. All right. Listen, I'm mindful of the time, and I know many listeners will be anticipating some discussion of how this analysis should inform our understanding of what is going on in Gaza, which you, you've just raised. So let's take a few minutes to to yeah. just address uh, the current siege and denial of humanitarian access to Gaza and explore how one should understand that. Both from, and perhaps we can start with just the IHL prohibitions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my view is that because the siege in its initial form was a total siege and articulated as such that this is a total cutoff of food, water, fuel, and electricity, it was at that stage unambiguously in violation of the prohibition of salvation of civilians as a method of warfare because there was this deliberate denial of sustenance and because the population that was the target of that denial of sustenance was a civilian population that didn't lose its character as civilian simply because there are also mass combatants within it. So that much, I think, is clear. Where it could have become more complicated is once aid starts being allowed through, then the question of whether the denial of total access of aid is about denying sustenance becomes more subject to interpretation because there are many reasons why the flow of aid might not be as much as it ought to be or as much as it needs to be, but figuring out what those reasons are can be complicated. However, in this particular case, I don't think it's that complicated partly because we have that initial framing, partly because the trickle of aid that has come since has been so woefully inadequate to the needs of the civilian population, and partly because even if one took the view that this was no longer a policy of sustenance denial, which I don't think is credible, we're now at the point where the expectation of the final state of starvation as a result of this deprivation is pretty clear. And so at that point, the alternative understanding of what's prohibited, namely acts that are not necessarily deliberate sustenance denial, but that have the consequence of causing civilian starvation, is itself implicated. And so, therefore, the prohibition attaches either way at this point. And there's then additionally, the, I should add that if the initial 
deprivation action had just been fuel and electricity, then it does get a little bit more complicated simply because food and water are, in my view, intrinsically indispensable to civilian survival. That's to say we don't need to look at the context to know that food and water are indispensable to civilian survival. They just are, by definition, objects that are indispensable to civilian survival. In the context of objects that are contingently indispensable to civilian survival, we need to look at what the purpose of the deprivation of those objects is. Is it to deny sustenance or is it for something quite different. And in that kind of context, it's more plausible to think it is for something quite different because electricity has all sorts of uses and fuel has, has all sorts of uses. But where those things were done in combination with the denial of food and water and where the continued denial of those other objects critical to precluding the necessary access to objects indispensable to civilian survival right now, I think it's quite plausible to think that the purpose of those forms of denial also connects to sustenance denial as a policy overall. But there's at least more potential ambiguity there. And in any event, at this point, given that the denial of any of these is quite plausibly leading to an expectation of civilian starvation as a final outcome, or other forms of similar outcomes, civilian death through inadequate electricity supply to hospitals, for example, then I think we're already at the point where where that's also indefensible under that second form of prohibited act. And it's interesting, I, I saw a post on Twitter just yesterday referencing your blog post on just security in relation to the, I'm not sure what the right word is, but you know there was uh, a mob that descended on mm -hmm. a supply depot and sort mm -hmm. of was um, trying to liberate uh, mm -hmm. food stocks, uh, which really reflects the kind of tearing at the social fabric that you yep. were referring to when you're talking about what is the nature of the wrong. And we're seeing sort of that start to play out in the context of Gaza. Right. And so in that context, even if one were disposed to say, I'm, these social bonds and these, these connections are sufficient that I would be willing to sacrifice myself for this community or sacrifice myself for my loved ones or whoever it is, where the biological imperative starts to tear against that, one's capacity to actually follow through on that commitment is reduced. Again, that doesn't mean that everybody suddenly loses all constraint, but it slowly tears at the capacity to maintain those bonds and those social norms and connections. And that has the consequence of tearing the society itself, tearing at the society itself, which is in a way almost a, a second layer of the of the torturous consequence. And so what do you say to the, the arguments that are being made, not so much in, in legal discourse, but at, le at least in the public discourse, that one, Hamas has stores of food, water, fuel, and, and therefore, to the extent that the civilian population is being denied, it's the responsibility lies with Hamas, not with Israel. Uh, and that in addition, if this is indeed the only way, and this gets back to the military necessity argument, if this is the only way for Israel to destroy Hamas, which is its stated military objective, then this becomes justified. Yeah. So on the first, I think there's a connection to the way arguments about human shields often occur in this yeah. context, which is clearly if Hamas has reserves of food and water that it is denying to the civilian population in order to preserve them for itself in a context in which that civilian population is 
suffering severe deprivation, that is a clear wrong on the part of Hamas. And to the extent that they're precluding civilians from leaving, there's also a sense in which this looks quite a lot like human shields, using human shields. But neither of those wrongs in any way changes the constraints that are appropriately applicable to the party that's engaging in the siege. So the fact that there are multiple wrongdoers in this context doesn't alleviate the responsibility of any one of them, just as Hamas putting military objectives in civilian apartment buildings or in refugee camps or whatever they're doing to maximize the civilian damage that would attach to attacks on those objectives does not relieve Israel from its obligations under proportionality and precautions vis-a-vis those civilians that would be affected. Equally, the fact that Hamas might have reserves of food and water does not change the obligations borne by Israel not to deprive the civilian population as a whole of sustenance. If anything, it might even make it less defensible. I don't think it's defensible either way, but the fact that Hamas is going to be well supplied means this is going to be the starvation of civilians without any military benefit. Because you're not going to starve out the Hamas combatants. We're going to starve 2 million civilians before we even get to that point. And that makes it even less plausibly defensible, even under a broad military necessity argument regarding permissibility here. Again, I don't think that's the right argument anyway. So even if Hamas didn't have these reserves, the action would still be prohibited in my view. But to point to them as somehow alleviating Israel's responsibility, I think, is backwards. It definitely suggests some culpability on Hamas's side. And there's no doubt about Hamas's culpability in this conflict for grave war crimes and crimes against humanity. But it doesn't change the calculus for for Israel. And similarly, on the, the military necessity side, this is, in my view, a bright line rule. It's a rule that attaches at the level of distinction and the requirement to be discriminate in military operations. And it attaches as powerfully as it attaches to kinetic attacks because of the grave torturous wrong being at least equivalent to the wrong that occurs when people are killed through kinetic attack. And just as the claim that there would be no other way to ensure the destruction of Hamas other than to kill everybody in Gaza is totally indefensible, as both a war crime and a crime against humanity, I think for the very same reason that logic is applied to torturing the society as a whole through depriving everybody within this zone of objects indispensable to their survival is indefensible, again, as a war crime, and in my view, also as a crime against humanity. The most likely crime against humanity category would be inhumane acts. But once people start to die, it would also be murder and ultimately extermination. And in fact, in the definition of extermination in the ICC statute, the way that it's elaborated, I think it's Article 7.2b, specifically includes the infliction of conditions of life to bring about the killing of the group by the denial of humanitarian relief. All right. Well, I think that's a, a good place to end this, as depressing a note as that may be. But before I let you go, of course, I'm going to ask you to recommend three readings for our readers. Yeah. So I was thinking about this and I looked through your prior bibliography and didn't want to duplicate. So there are many books and articles in that existing list that I think are fantastic and I would 
very readily second. But in the interest of adding to the list rather than duplicating, and correct me if I've if I've uh, missed these as being already on the list, but one that I wanted to include was uh, Naz Medirzadeh's article, Cut These Words, in the Harvard International Law Journal from 2020. And this is a piece on basically the tone and framing of scholarship relating to the law of war, and particularly contrasting that tone in the context of Vietnam and the analysis of law of armed conflict as it relates to the Vietnam War with the tone today as being a shift from passionate scholarship, scholarship that really takes the the moral and personal and social implications of this as directly infused into the the analysis versus the more kind of antiseptic, um, technical, dry scholarship of our current moment, certainly focusing in her case on the scholarship relating to uh, US counterterrorism wars following 9-11, and seeing something as being lost in that transition, seeing us as losing something from the shift to kind of acronyms and technical language around DPH and CCF and all of these concepts without really thinking about the human stakes or without expressing the human stakes in the in the way that they deserve. And there's a point in that piece where she raises the question of whether we would be embarrassed to present these arguments or framings to the people who are most directly affected by armed conflict as just too removed from the reality that they face. And I think that's a really important corrective. Um, I'm sure I'm guilty of precisely the, the thing that she's, she's identifying. And it's maybe a, the nature of our, our industry or our practice that drives in that direction. But I think it's a really useful corrective against that. A second book worth mentioning, um, written or edited, I should say, partly by my colleagues at the Fletcher School, by Bridget Conley, Alex Duval, Katrina Murdoch, and Wayne Chordash, which is called Accountability for Mass Starvation from 2022. And it's got a combination of lawyers, anthropologists, area specialists, humanitarian experts, uh, looking at various dimensions of the way starvation is used and used in ways that potentially implicate criminal accountability and looking across a number of case studies and a number of frames of analysis. And I think it's really helpful for thinking about the multi-dimensional nature of this particular practice and some of the issues it raises. And then a final uh, book worth mentioning, I think, is Carsten Stahn's Justice as a Message, or Justice as Message, from 2020, which canvases the various different expressive or expressivist components of international criminal law. When I was mentioning earlier in the context of thinking about salvation, one of the papers really focused on what really is the criminal wrong here, what's the thing that is being expressed through criminal law as distinctively wrongful and worthy of condemnation. That's obviously an expressivist way of thinking about criminal law and criminal accountability. And this book is helpful because it canvases the wide range of different forms of expression associated with international criminal law and subjects them to criticism and critique and also analysis. And I think it's a, it's a powerful book in that respect. Great. Well, that's wonderful. Tom, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I mean, this has been fascinating. And of course, we'll be posting links to your articles and to some of the shorter essays that you have written on the same topic on the webpage. As you may know, when you're 
glancing through the bibliography, I think at least one of them has already been one of the recommended readings, so it's already up there, but we'll get those there. And hopefully this will whet the appetite of listeners to dive into the two articles, which are, you know, really very sophisticated. We haven't been able to do them justice in, in the time we've had here. But thank you so much for, for helping us understand siege, starvation, deprivation, and giving us a sense of how to understand what's going on in Gaza through that lens. Thank you very much, Craig. It's a pleasure to be with you. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students about it. Your help with the promotion really can make a difference in spreading the word and expanding the exposure of the podcast. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter, or X, as it's now called, at, at jibjabpodcast for updates on the coming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, take care.